from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 63 of the Business of Food Travel podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Tamara Soma. Dr. Tamara Soma is a professor, researcher, and teacher at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, BC, Canada. When she is not teaching, she is busy running the Food Systems Lab, a social innovation research lab tackling complex food issues. As the first hijabi professor at the university, Tamara often finds that her identity can be a point of tension. While she faces a lot of stereotypes as a visibly Muslim woman professor, she is optimistic that food is healing and can bring diverse people together. Originally from Indonesia, she is passionate about the role of food literacy in fostering belonging, identity, and in supporting environmental sustainability. Here's our conversation with Tamara. Tamara, hi. Thank you for joining us today on the Business of Food Travel podcast. Hi, Eric. Such a pleasure to join you. It is a a pleasure for me as well and a true joy. You are from one of my favorite food countries, Indonesia. I would like to ask you to start off, what was your journey like from Indonesia to Canada? How did you make that journey and, and that decision to come to Canada? Oh, wow. I love my home country. I will say that I miss the food so, so much. Yeah, so basically my journey from Indonesia to Canada is a long one. I was born and raised in West Java in the city of Bandung, Indonesia. Bandung is like a a culinary mecca. It's a hub of everything delicious when it comes to food. And I think growing up, I've always been passionate about justice, about the environment. And basically, when I was in high school, my mother had this opportunity to take us to the United States. She was doing a research fellowship at Wake Forest University. And as I was kind of figuring out where my destiny would lie, was I going back to Indonesia? Am I going somewhere else? And will I stay in the United States? I was looking at opportunities in Canada because actually the United States is very, very expensive for an international student. And I saw this uh, great program for environmental studies and I just went for it. And it was the university is called York University. And they had all of these great programs, courses, uh, teaching about environmental justice, environmental studies. And so I decided this would be a good program. And then that was back in 2002. Uh, I was thinking that this would be a temporary thing. I would come to Canada, go back home. But nope, I basically met my husband, fell in love, stayed here. And and yeah, so that was kind of like my, my journey from Indonesia to Canada. I do miss the food. I will say that. So I just have to ask, you correctly stated that the United States is expensive, especially for foreign students, but Canada is also expensive. So I'm surprised that you went from the U.S. to Canada because that's kind of going from the frying pan into the fire in terms of cost. <laughs> well, actually, back then, way back in the old yonder, um, in 2002, U.S. currency was higher. So since my mom was there in the U.S. Uh, doing some research fellowship, there was a little bit more um power and strength of the U.S. dollar and and Canadian tuition, Canadian international tuition was significantly cheaper than American international tuition. And also I, I did receive several scholarships to study in Canada. So that really softened the blow for me. And it was it was just a, a pretty much clear decision. I can pay 40K or I can get in for the first year pretty much free because everything was covered. <laughs> so that was a pretty easy choice. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Canada is very lucky to have you. How often do you get back to Indonesia? Oh my goodness, the last time I went back to Indonesia was in 2015. Um, that was when I was doing my research. I, I did my PhD on household food consumption and food waste management in Indonesia. And so that was a really lovely way to segue my academic research and interest and passion to uh, contributing something back to my home country. And also a great way to make an excuse to visit my family. It's been so long, but I'm a mother of three. And um, it's very expensive to go back home to Indonesia. So it, it's basically a, a privilege, a luxury kind of thing to be able to see my family, go back home. I usually have a list of, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 items that I'm going <laughs> to eat back home. So, so I get my fill of the Indonesian food. Um, yeah, I, I haven't been back home since. Well, I'd love to talk more about your research and what you're doing at the university, but but let's talk about the fun stuff first. I was in Indonesia, oh gosh, maybe 10 years ago. We have an ambassador of our association there in Jakarta, and she picked me up at the airport, and she and her son gave me tours around Jakarta, and I met some really fantastic people. Have you ever, oh, I'm sure you know, Helianti Hillman? Names is familiar, but you know, I actually left Indonesia when I was a teenager, so a little bit oh. novice in that realm. <laughs> okay. Well, she used to be a lawyer, but then she founded Javara Indonesia. And are you familiar with that brand? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And wow, I was absolutely blown away. I visited her gift shop and studio there before it was the the huge welcome center it is today. And I just remember seeing the fantastic packaging. You could really tell that the ingredients were top quality. She, of course, gave me some goodies to take away. But I just remember her and her story and what a powerful and moving woman she was. And I really cherish, that was probably the highlight of my trip to Indonesia, besides, of course, meeting our ambassador in person and speaking at the conference. But really meeting Helianti was, she's just an amazing woman and she's doing so much for the farmers there in Indonesia. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned about the farmers because one of the, the biggest thing um, in my research, and this is tying back to my culture and my identity, I, I like to joke around with my kids because, you know, they're they're half Indonesian. My husband is Lebanese, so we, we come from a very strong culinary uh, powerhouse. My parents basically taught me, my mother especially taught me this uh, folk tale, this Indonesian story of the tale of the crying rice. And basically, this kind of helped inform and shape how I value food and how I care about food. And um, the story basically is that a farmer was out in the field. And as she was basically ready to go back after a day of harvesting rice, um, she heard a crying sound. And she went out into the field trying to find that source of the, the, the crying sound. And it was a, a handful of unharvested rice. And Basically, that's so growing up, my parents would always say, Tamara, eat every single grain of rice. If you don't eat it, the rice will cry. That's not just, I, I used to think when, it was, when I was little that the little rice pieces would, would cry. So I would eat every single little grain. But I think the, the whole moral of the story is that farmers do so much hard work. It's not just what, it's their tear, it's their labor, it's all of the water that goes into the food. And so when, when I think about wasting food, I'm thinking about wasting identity, wasting the farmer's labor. That has really shaped who I am today and how I conduct my research and, and why I care so much about food studies in general. And and yeah, that's a little piece of me that I think it's, it's never going to go away. And I, I kind of transfer it to my children as well. 
The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Need help to take your business or destination to the next level? Or are you looking for the latest trends and best practices from around the world? Look no further than our upcoming Food Trucks Global Summit. It's our largest annual event with delegates from dozens of countries. Visit worldfoodtravel.org and click on the events tab to learn more and register. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think when we talk about culinary tourism and and a lot of times it's just about the restaurants and the chefs and they get all the, the spotlight, we forget that the seeds of cuisine are in agriculture. I think that there's so many farmers whose stories are untold. Just to, to use Helianti as an example again, I think she does a really good job of respecting the farmer's journey and their story and sharing it in their packaging and on their website and so on. And I just wish that more food exporters or manufacturers would do the same because I think that so many people today have really distanced themselves from the source of all food, all excellence in food. Yes. And you mentioned distance and actually there is this academic term, you know, there's this framework called distancing and basically distancing, if we kind of tie it to food, is the separation of the eaters from the producers of the food and from the source of the, the food production. So, you know, if we're eating meat, if we're eating animals, we are disconnected and uh, from that animal itself. If we're eating food, we don't know who the farmer is. How did they grow the food? Where is it coming from? And basically, according to this uh, framework, this theory of distancing, the more that we are distanced and disconnected, the more that we would tend to waste or exploit or devalue something. So in this case, food. And there's this kind of spatial distancing, very long distance food supply chain, people just completely not understanding or not being able to have the opportunity to grow food. But then there's also the mental distancing, where we're just kind of eating mindlessly, not fully understanding the, the kind of maybe the spiritual aspect for some people or just the kind of mental and emotional connection that goes into producing food. And really cherish and respect where the food comes from, I think. So that's really what it boils down to. Like you said, we're, we sometimes it becomes a mindless act where we're just stuffing ourselves with these shovels that we call spoons and forks. <laughs> and <laughs> really, there's a lot of people in the world that don't have that luxury. Yes, and actually in Canada, so when I came from Indonesia, coming to the United States, coming to Canada, this is a G7 country, very wealthy. And yet in Canada, every single year, we're seeing a growth in food insecurity. So right now, the staff that we have in Canada, it's over 5 million Canadians are food insecure. And that's a, a pretty big percentage, especially when it comes to children. One in five Canadian children are food insecure. So they would go to school hungry. So basically, in my research, I have my heart in Canada and in Indonesia, maybe a little bit in the United States, I'm, I'm basically a global citizen, I see that a lot of these issues are interconnected. So in the past, we would think about food insecurity as happening somewhere else, right somewhere outside of the global north in other places. But now, you can literally see it in your very own backyard. And I think with inflation, things are even getting worse. Well, 5 million in a country of 38 million, that's a pretty large percentage. It is. It, and again, it's its unacceptable. And currently what's happening with a lot of community members who are food insecure, and by the way, a lot of these people that rely on food banks, they're not unemployed. They're working multiple jobs, but really can't make ends meet because the housing cost is so high here. There are so many different solutions, but right now the solution that is being pushed is just 
just go to the food bank, just go to the charities. But that's that's a very short term solution. That's not really addressing the root cause of the problem. So what's the situation like then in West Java, where you're from? Are people getting enough food to eat or is there food on the table? Are they happy or is there a lot of food insecurity, too? I think what I'm really concerned about in the case of West Java and Indonesia more broadly is just the disappearing small scale and middle, medium scale farmers. There was an article recently that talked about the projection of farmers basically going extinct in Indonesia because it's very hard for them with the high cost of producing food, the high cost of making, like they, they produce food and, and you need the pesticides, you need per- fertilizer, you need water, you need for the land, you need the labor. And yet the price that they get is really not covering their expenses. And so increasingly farmers basically, they can't make ends meet anymore. And so that is a very concerning situation because when we think about Indonesia, the fact that we we can really grow food 365 days of the year, and we have so many people, like lots of great expertise in agriculture, but the fact is that we're really tied into this long distance food supply chain and economic trade system that is not necessarily covering the cost for the farmers. So there's a lot of injustice and equity, which means that, you know, hey, if we lose farmers, how are we going to feed ourselves? Well, what you've described is really happening in a lot of countries around the world. I hear the same thing in the United States, and I, I live in Spain. I hear the same thing about the, the smaller farmers in Spain, the, the family traditions, the younger kids not wanting to go into farming, and then what's left. And I would like to ask you, because as the research director of the Food Systems Lab there at Simon Fraser University, I could not think of a better person to ask, what's the solution to our food systems problem? I will say that you're asking a solution to a very wicked problem. And so when it comes to wicked problems, basically the whole idea is that if you try to solve a wicked problem with one solution in one country, in one sector, you can actually make the problems even worse. So the the answer to that is we need a whole systemic solution, a systemic overall. And really that starts with this concept called food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is different than food security, but basically food sovereignty is the agency and the ability for nations and people to decide what types of production, what types of food they want to grow and how they grow their food. And increasingly, a lot of these kind of decision making abilities, it's kind of pushed and pressured and muted because of larger international trade systems. And also, for example, in many global South countries, there's a big interest for ensuring self-sufficiency, like local food, right? Like the buy local, that kind of movement has grown in many global North countries. However, a lot of global South countries like Indonesia, like in different countries in Africa, where I'm currently also exploring research uh, partnerships with colleagues there, they're pushed to do export market food production, so just commodities. And when you're focused on producing commodities for an export market, you're actually not producing food for your own population. And if there's speculation in commodities, it's it's quite volatile in some cases. If the price of the commodities fall, you can't just eat chocolate, it's delicious, but you can't just eat the cocoa beans and expect to survive, right? And so the push on just producing commodities can be very, very harmful. So it starts with really food sovereignty and movements like La Fia Campesina, you know, these are peasant farmers movement. These are the types of movement that are trying to reshape how we can transform our system to be more sustainable and equitable because we really need it. 
Well, I would not disagree with you, but I feel like there's two sides of the coin here. There's people like you and me saying, yes, we need to, to support food sovereignty and, and let the, the people, let the farmers, let the infrastructure decide. And then there's the other side of the coin where you've got big ag and big corporations, the Monsantos of the world saying, no, I don't think so. We're going to genetically modify everything and you're going to continue to pay us for those seeds for the next millennia. How can the two find a common ground and, and agree at a bargaining table? And the fact of the matter is that we have a, a food system that is very much consolidated when it comes to like power, right? You know, there are five companies basically controlling the meat market. There are four companies controlling the grain. So as a matter of fact, farmers are often left out of the table, right? So they have these organizations, they have these side events, they have these side conferences, but they often don't get invited into the big spaces where trade is occurring. I think that in some cases, some organized, some corporations are starting to look into the, the kind of equity or maybe the, the social justice piece, and maybe they're starting to think about uh, bringing in diverse voices. But sometimes I'm still quite skeptical, especially because when I think about the business model and the business model is that it's not based on sharing. Because when I think about my grandfather, my grandfather had a little farm in Indonesia. Uh, you know, I know a lot of different farmers. When I think about growing food, a lot of it is about seed saving, seed sharing, sharing knowledge. And that's very different from an approach to food system and agriculture that's based on patents and copyrights and trademarks. And I'll sue you if you use this and I'll get you in court if you tweak my whatever tractor or something like that. It's, it's, it's very proprietary and not based on sharing or necessarily open access. And that's a, a kind of a, a different type of worldview and system than what other people like indigenous experts and peasant farmers are advocating for, which is more based on community building, sharing, and this idea of abundance and open access. It's almost like they're, as you said, they're two sides of the coin. And I wonder if this two sides of the coin can really mesh very well in some cases. That's a really deep question, and I don't know that we'll solve it today, but I'm wondering, because a lot of our audience is in the culinary tourism industry, is there a role that visitors or tourists can play when they visit a destination to help to move the needle on this? Because, Tamara, sometimes when I travel, I almost feel guilty for traveling. Here I am in a nice hotel, eating in a nice restaurant, and I feel like I'm not giving enough back to the local community. I feel like I'm, I'm a taker and not, and not mm. contributing to the solution. So what, what can tourists do to help solve this problem? That's a really good question. And I think you're right that in some cases, tourism can be very, very extractive of the local community. The biggest thing that we can all do, um, especially when we're travel, is really to travel with humility. Often what I find very frustrating is this idea, you know, when tourists go to a particular country and then suddenly they become the expert. I remember reading um, a Guardian article talking about how somehow, you know, jackfruit, which is a, a culinary delight, you know, we've, we've grown up eating jackfruit in Indonesia. Many cultures grow up eating jackfruit. Suddenly, oh, it's this new thing that we, we discovered that we revolutionized, you know, this gross food, but we somehow know how to make it delicious. And we're like, excuse me, sorry, what? <laughs> I think it starts with humility. 
And then another thing also, especially, you know, with a big organization such as yours, like in, in, in Indonesia, there's a, there, the Ministry of Tourism and Creative Economy is really doing a lot of great job. And one thing that I've been kind of hinting and sharing with them is this idea of a circular economy, a circular food economy. Because the reason why, you know, when you mentioned about taking, taking and not giving back, the concept of a, a circular food economy is a concept that designs waste out of the system and it's about like returning the nutrients back. It's really circularity rather than a linear food system. And I think if we can create a tourism system, a, a food culinary you know, initiative that is focused on reducing waste or preventing waste and ensuring that, you know, the, the loop is closed from the point of production, which is, again, as you mentioned, really respecting and valuing and making sure that farmers are paid well, and then connecting all of the dots of the pieces all the way, you know, from consumption and then back to food growing again. That's one way where we can stop the extraction and instead like bring back things, not only to the local economy, but also bring back the nutrients and like really help regenerate the soil. So I, I love this idea of closing the loop when we think of tourism. Well, I, I agree with you 100% on the circular economy. You don't have to tell me twice about that. But I'm just thinking about other travelers who are arriving in destinations who may not be as, as to use your word, may not have as much humility as other travelers. And they arrive and they think that they're just going to enjoy themselves. They're going to drink a lot of beer and have fun and party and throw that plastic wrapping wherever it lands. And not all travelers are like this. And we certainly know that. And I do think consumers are changing, but perhaps not fast enough. Let's go back to this question then. If, if we're traveling and not everyone is as humble as we would like them to be, what messaging can we weave into the conversation? Is this a, a role for the national tourist offices or is this something that can be done in marketing campaigns? How can we help to send this message to the people who need to hear it? Definitely, there is increasingly a growing focus on responsible tourism, right? I mean, that's how ecotourism started. But then even ecotourism can be a form of greenwashing if, if not done properly. I think it's really the need to change worldviews. Like, so for example, when I went to Thailand and I, I went there for a, a conference, I went to my hotel, there were all these important billboards just kind of trying to help people understand how people need to respect Buddha. And I think Buddha is not just an object that you go and have and then you just plop in your gardens. You know, it's, it's something that the Thai people really respect. It's a figure that they respect and that they cherish. And so don't treat it like it's just a joke. And I think that was actually because I was going through the airport and I saw those messaging, it was just a good reminder, right, of, of the, the need to respect the local culture and the local tradition. I've seen so many, I've seen and heard so many cases where tourists would come to Indonesia or other places and they would do really inappropriate things in in very sacred sites in sites that are important for the community that needs some education you know uh, like when i go to indigenous sites like uh, haida Gwaii is a beautiful island a lot of tourists go there too there's actually within the website itself like protocols protocols of understanding that you know when you're coming here you're coming as a relation we are all kins we are all relations and so therefore you respect your relations and i think that protocol really helps set your mind in a different way. So when you're going there, you know that you're going there with responsibilities in mind and not just, yeah, you can enjoy yourself, but you can enjoy enjoy yourself with, with respect. You talked before a little bit about responsible tourism. I really like your comment and, and the direction that you're going with that. 
And I'd like to ask you, well, maybe perhaps start with a comment first. As a Muslim woman, you're from a Muslim country and you understand the parameters that are in place for when people visit a Muslim country. For example, there is little or no alcohol, if, if at all. There's certain behaviors that have to be respected. There will not be pork on the table and, and things like that. And in the work that we've done most recently with Saudi Arabia, is it's a country that is making very quick strides to open itself up to the rest of the world and, and to join the the modern tourist world. And I think it's doing a great job of that. But at the same time, I think that it is a country that forces a tourist to think twice about how they're going to behave when they're there. I think that we can all learn something from other countries and other cultures. And I'm just wondering if maybe we just need to, I don't know, do we need to do more traveling? Do we need to share more meals together? But traveling to different cultures? I, I don't know. What, what's the answer here? Yeah, that's a very good question. And one of the things that I like to mention and just to kind of remind people also is that Muslims are not a, a monolith and different Muslim majority countries may belong to a particular interpretation. And sometimes it's really culture and not really the religion. So a predominantly Muslim country like Indonesia is very different than a predominantly Muslim country like Saudi Arabia different culture. And so it's always important to kind of take some time to observe, take some time to research, ask questions, but definitely sharing meals together is so, so, so important. And one of the things that I really appreciate being in Canada, I have so many diverse neighbors, when they're inviting me over, they're asking me, I, we just want to make sure that you have any, you know, if you have any dietary or religious sensitivity, being open to asking those kind of questions. I always mention to friends, I'm glad that you're coming, but I actually don't need this wine that you're bringing <laughs> to again, because like wine is a very a nice gesture for some cultures, right? Like, you know, you come to dinner, you bring wine, but in my household, that wine would be, it would not be consumed. So there's, you can save your money buying apple juice for me. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is food has the power to bring people together. Food has the power to break stigma. And we need to do a lot more sharing and talking and also creating a safe space to actually ask questions. The problem is often we're, we're kind of scared to ask questions like what is allowed or is it true that, say, in Islam or in this country, you're not allowed to do this. The problem is we are nervous and because we're nervous to ask questions, then we never get to the root of like how we can understand our differences and our similarities and maybe even some erroneous assumptions, right? Because sometimes some erroneous assumptions get into media, get into the TV, and then suddenly you think, oh, women in Indonesia can't drive a car or a motorcycle when, when in fact we've had women president for a very long time. So the key is that food has that power to bring people together and to break misunderstanding. And I think we, we need more spaces where we can do that, maybe eat with a stranger. <laughs> food does have that power. You're absolutely right. And I think we're saying that maybe we're nervous sometimes. I agree with that. I mean, when I go to a new country, especially one that has a stigma attached with it, perhaps, uh, you expect everything to be a certain way, right? Or people to behave a certain way. And it scares you a little bit, I think. And what I learned from visiting countries that were so foreign to, say, the Western world was that you should just, going back to what you said before, be humble, be open. So don't be the first one to open your mouth, but listen and see what your hosts tell you, see what they share with you, see what they offer you, and try to learn from them. So listening as opposed to trying to be talking all the time. 
Absolutely. One important thing also when it comes to especially like travel advisory and all of these things. Again, this is because I've lived in the United States. I called at home for two years in North Carolina. If I were just to kind of assume everything that I'm reading from the media about the United States, I would probably be scared about going there, right? Even if the travel advisory says it's okay, right? In some cases, we need to be more adventurous, but adventurous doesn't mean that you have to be reckless. Adventurous just means that you need to go with more of an open mind and actually suspend judgment and suspend assumptions. So here's an example. For example, some people think that in a Muslim country, if a man is not looking straight at your eyes or not touching you like with like giving their hands to to shake your hands, that they're being rude and being kind of thinking that women is a second class citizen. But in fact, that's not the case. So for me, in, in our culture, when we, we don't shake hands, we, we clasp it together, just like how Thai people usually do it. The thing is, like in different cultures, we have different greeting methods and actually if you stare at people's eyes, like it's actually quite rude. You know, we all come with our own baggage, with our own lived experience, with our own culture. Like if I go to a more Spanish or like a, a like a French speaking country, usually the greeting is, you know, kisses on the cheeks, right? But again, that's that's what's normal. That's what's culturally appropriate. But for, for me, I probably don't want to just kiss a bunch of people and like strangers. So it's really about kind of understanding that come with different cultures and not to immediately judge if someone's not doing things your way, the way that you're used to, that they're actually being rude. I often have to correct that or help people understand that just because people shake hands or like or, or do greetings in a different way, it doesn't mean that they don't care about you. It's just that's their style. That's how they do it. How was it when you were in the United States and then later in Canada? A lot of times people, they joke Americans don't have passports, they don't travel internationally, they don't understand people from other cultures, they demand everyone speak English, all of these stereotypes that which may or may not have a, a seed of truth to them. But as an openly Muslim woman coming to not a big city in the United States, in the American South, that must have been a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, well, I actually wasn't um, visibly Muslim because I was a, a teenager. I chose to wear the hijab around 2014. That's when I decided, 2014, 2015. So I didn't wear a hijab before. Uh, my, my parents are Muslim, born and raised in a predominantly, again, Indonesia is actually not a Muslim country. It's just a predominantly Muslim country. I was in high school during 9-11. So that was really, really hard for me. Because people were saying things like in high school, for example, they were saying things right next to me in front of me because they didn't think I was a Muslim. And they were saying things that were really, really awful. But at the same time, they were also beautiful, beautiful human beings. Wonderful. I had some some of the best teachers I had that I just love and cherish so much. So much. They were from the United States. Being in the South, I also realized that a lot of the kind of caricature or the kind of stereotype about Southern people, about people in North Carolina, again, that's an assumption, that's stereotypes. For every one bad person, there's going to be another great human being. So I love this concept called cultural genius. And the reason why I think of cultural genius uh, is, is that there's there's beauty everywhere. There's genius everywhere, you know, whether it be in the South, the, in wherever it is. And what I like to do is I don't judge anyone based on their nationality, based on their race, based on their religion. I judge people based on their actions. If you're in North Carolina, and if you're South Baptist Christian and you're just a, a wonderful good human let's be friends I'll invite you for a delicious Eid meal or Ramadan meal or like an Indonesian meal and I'd be more than happy to come to your church and you know enjoy the food 
and, and again, that, that kind of comes back to food and how food can break stigma, but also how food is a way to break a lot of stereotypes and judgment. Because my goodness, when in North Carolina, I just love the pies. I love the peach pies, the pecan pie, the everything pie. It's one of those things, right? If we just see everything through the lens of what the media is portraying or through one or two bigoted people from whatever religion they are or from whatever nation they are, we will be so scared of going anywhere. We will just be holed up in our room. And I think that's the power of travel. The power of tourism is that in a way, it's really about building relationship if done correctly. Building those bridges. So I've got to ask you, when you're in North Carolina, do you like barbecue sauce? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I will say that we've been invited to so many barbecues. And in the beginning, when we were still naive and didn't know, we thought that barbecue was chicken. <laughs> it was yeah. pork. Uh, the good thing is, as a Muslim, if you accidentally eat pork, no biggies, you know, just don't do it again if you know it's pork. We basically can adapt. And so the, the kind of nice, delicious flavor that I remember about kind of my experience in North Carolina, I can bring it back and just adapt it to suit the food that I eat and the flavor that I like. And so even in Canada, thinking back about my home, because we don't have a, a many, Indo like we actually don't have Indonesian restaurants here where I live. I always try to adapt my home cooking, make it more simple, but then get local ingredients. And that's how I create my own home away from home. Well, you're right. There is a lot of pork in the South, but I think if you can get the sauce right, then you can apply it to the meat of your choice or exactly. even a vegetarian dish. But it's all about the sauce, you know? It's all about the sauce and it's a pretty sweet sauce. <laughs> When you were in the South, did you happen to learn about the different kinds of barbecue sauces and the different bases? No, I wasn't that sophisticated <laughs> as, a, oh, okay. as, a, as a high school student. Uh, definitely not. But the one thing that I just really loved about my parents, we did some road trips. We went to Virginia. We went to Kentucky. They took us to garage sales. So we were always trying and doing new things. We didn't come from a wealthy background and in the in the US we lived very simply. So a lot of the things like a lot of the big things that we did was just going to the grocery store, getting some chips and my mom would make rice in the rice cooker and then we would buy rotisserie chicken and we would just have ketchup or barbecue sauce on the side and we would just eat it. And that's the highlight of our day. So simple life, but good food, good company. So just a quick crash course on barbecue sauces. So North Carolina, theirs is, I believe it's vinegar based. And then in South Carolina, it's mustard based. Mm. And then you have a ketchup based one in Tennessee, all the way over to Kansas City. And then the Texas one is more of a dry rub. So the Texas one is the kind that you would get in places like Argentina and Brazil when they say they have barbecue. It's really more of that dry grilled meat kind of thing, although there is sometimes there's some kind of dry rub spices in the, the Texas meat. You'll also find beef more prevalently in Texas than you will in the other southern states. Well, I'm going to say this is my Indonesian pride coming in, uh, but Indonesian barbecue, Indonesian uh, ayam bakar, sate, and all of these things, I will say it's my favorite and especially the the in the fish barbecue that Indonesian um, people make. A lot of what we make with the sauce is with soy so sweet soy sauce, right? So caramelized and then also the peanut sauce. So it's a di very different barbecue than the kind of North Carolinian, often more spicy too, like depending on the, well, we use sambal a lot. 
Yeah. So, and this is not fair because now I'm drooling, I'm I'm salivating, <laughs> thinking about back home, but with no recourse to actually figure out how I'm going to get my hands on some Indonesian barbecue. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I absolutely adore sambal. It is my favorite kind of chili sauce, more so than the Vietnamese chili sauce or, or anywhere else in Southeast Asia. I think you guys have got hot sauce down perfectly. Yes, yes, yes. we should be in the Guinness world record (laughs) or get some oscar for the sambal creation now my favorite indonesian dish is nasi tumpeng i I love the shape of it and how it looks but could one put sambal on that or is that a no-no Oh, 100%. You know, the thing in Indonesia, I can only say maybe for, for my tribe, for my, I'm a Sundanese uh, person, ethnic Sundanese and in West Java, you know, we, we kind of mind our own business. You do you. I like my sambal a certain way. You might like your sambal a certain way. I might add some sweet soy sauce into my sambal because just to make it less spicy and then others might not. My mom used to eat rice with just small chili peppers and she would just eat rice with that. And I'm like, how, how can you do that? Yeah, you can do whatever you want as long as it tastes good and honestly some of the best coffee i've ever had on the planet is from indonesia truly you guys are the world leaders in coffee as far as i'm concerned yeah and so so here's the thing though and and again this goes back to the whole issue of equity and justice and the global supply chain is that you get the really good indonesian coffee outside of indonesia but sometimes you get the kind of like leftovers in when you're actually in Indonesia. And so that's mm. the kind of thing that we want to have a fairer, more sustainable, more just world where we can have that sovereignty piece. So yes, let's share our beautiful coffee, our beautiful food with the world, but make sure that the Indonesian people themselves can also have access to that deliciousness. Because again, the, the peasants can't even afford it. If they can't enjoy it, then it's, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Yeah. I remember when I was there, I was looking for chocolate, you know, knowing that Indonesia produces cacao, I was expecting some of the world's best chocolate. And I didn't find it. I I really didn't like most of the chocolate I had there. And I think it's just like you said, the the best cacao beans are exported and find their ways into luxury chocolate bars in London and New York City. And it's not what you're going to find there on the streets of Jakarta. Yes, and actually in many Global South countries, um, a lot of the kind of calls are for Global South countries to actually have the power and the infrastructure to process their cocoa beans right at home. Um, And that's because often we only export the raw commodities, but we don't actually have the opportunities to actually process it. And when you get to process it, right, so to, to actually roast the coffee and package it, that's a whole different value added business and economic profit compared to if you're just exporting the raw. When when we talk about Indonesian chocolate, you're talking about milk chocolate with a lot of it's very, very, very different. But meanwhile, if you go all around the world, you know, in Belgium and Brussels, like I, I've been there myself, they use Indonesian cacao, they use African cacao, but then we don't really get to have that opportunity to actually process it and develop our talent to create those delicious pastries and what have you. I think the big piece here is really helping global South countries develop some of that infrastructure, because that's also a great piece of tourism is that if you can actually, you know, in Canada, a great piece of tourism is seeing places like going to the farm, seeing how apple cider is made, going to an indigenous community where you can learn how to cook the food with them, with the community and see how the salmon is processed and what have you. That's a wonderful experience. It brings economy back to the local community and it also creates value added opportunities. And 
I think that's the piece that can really be honed and invested upon in many global South countries, especially in Indonesia, because that's where tourism is not just about taking, but it's also about giving back. You're absolutely right. The last podcast guest we interviewed was Chef Selassie Atadika from Ghana. Uh, she has a chocolate company in Ghana, and she does a lot of work with the local farmers there as well. She was saying when she moved back to Ghana, because her family moved to the United States when she was young, and then she decided to move back to Ghana, she was kind of smacked in the face. She said that we would take the crops from Ghana export them to Europe, and then they would be shipped back to, not to Ghana, but to Lagos in Nigeria, where she'd have to go and pick up the products that she needed in Ghana, but they were shipped into Nigeria. Think about how many hands are touching that, how many times the cost is going up and up and up for each time the commodity or the product shifts hands. That's just ridiculous. Why can't we just have factories in the country that are processing the product right there? If I had a three-hour podcast with you, I can go all into structural adjustment policies and some of the policies of International Monetary Fund and the World Bank that makes it very difficult for local companies and for, for countries, for countries in the global south to actually develop their own infrastructure and also have the, that power to kind of keep the food home to process it. There's all these regulations, all of these regulatory mechanisms that makes it really difficult. But that goes back to distancing, because one of the things that we have to remember, too, is that that's a lot of greenhouse gas emission to move things around only for it to go back. I mean, we have cases in Canada where we have apples or berries that have to be transported to the US just for it to be packaged and then just for it to go back again. It's so inefficient. Uh, and this is how our food system is run. And I think if we actually improve the efficiencies by investing in the local infrastructure, that's where you can make sure that the farmers get more bang for the buck. You can have a thriving local economy and you can actually reduce the greenhouse gas emission as well. So it's kind of like a win-win-win for planet people and the economy. Looking at this from an outsider's perspective, I see this as kind of neocolonialism on two fronts. First of all, you have the multinational corporations that are making, probably making it hard for those factories to get set up in those countries of origin. But then as a tourist, and I'm coming to these countries, like I said before, I am feeling really awkward because I am feeling like I am taking advantage of the local products, the local people, and I'm supposed to be having a holiday and having a good time. And But I can't because I, I keep thinking about what the local people aren't getting out of this equation that I'm paying for. And that's, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, you want to do what's right, but then often, so this is in my research where I talk about the value action gap and the value action gap is where you have all of these values. You're aware that you want to do something different, but then when it comes to actually acting upon it, there's this gap because there's actually not enough capacity or not enough infrastructure or not enough human resources or whatever it is, right? Not enough financial resources to make sure that you can actually live your value and actually practice your value. So in the case of tourism, for example, increasingly you have, like in Canada, I'll just give you the example of Canada. We have indigenous owned hotel that serves indigenous food and where the arts and the, the arts that are being sold and everything is certified, meaning it's, they've made sure they've had good relationship to make sure that these are authentic um, indigenous uh, made arts uh, or painting or sculpture or what have you. Because the thing is, a lot of people, they come to Canada, they're, oh, we want to buy, you know, indigenous art and this and that. And it turns out these are just printed fakes. And that's a major problem. And even in Indonesia, too, I can see how the beautiful, authentic batik, if you're buying it from 
um, artisans from people like locally that are making it, you know, they're going to get the bang for the buck. But if you're just getting one that's been printed in a factory and it's someone else's art, that's probably that might be plagiarized, that becomes problematic. And this is where ministries of tourism or departments of tourism will need to have better regulation. Just like in Europe, you have the protected designation of origin with certain products, with cheese or with meat or with what have you. So you know that you are actually supporting the local farmers and that product is really coming from that region. We need some sort of mechanism for accountability. Well, Tamara, we didn't even get a chance to really touch on your research, and I'm delighted that you brought in the value action gap. I'm going to remember that one because that (laughs) explains the conundrum that I go through when I travel. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to to share, maybe a, a, a quote that you love or something inspirational that you'd like to share with our listeners? As, as you mentioned in this podcast, Islam is very important for me. That's also, and my culture is very important for me. One of the, I think that a nice, a really nice quote that I remember from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is that the worst kind of feast is the one where the poor are not invited. And I think that is just such a harrowing quote to remind us of our responsibilities to one another in that as we when we have the money, when we have the food and we're having these parties and we're in these beautiful banquet halls, it's important to just remind us ourselves of the people that could not be there, the people that could not sit there and try to create a different food system, a different world where regardless of whether you are a doctor or a lawyer or if someone is a janitor or, or something else, we can actually sit in the table because at the end of the day, we're all equal. We're all siblings from a different mother. Food has that power if we actually start thinking about each other as kin and as family. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your quote, for sharing your time, your knowledge. Like you said, I think we could talk for three hours easily, unfortunately. <laughs> I know we're not the Joe Rogan show, so our listeners are not going to stay glued to the, the speakers for three hours. But Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Tamara, it, it was such a pleasure chatting with you, and I certainly hope to meet you in person one day. Absolutely. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and its Food Treks Global Summit, the next one taking place on April 27 and 28, 2023. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org. Or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Tamara Soma. And our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead.